everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around, drinking, and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Dave Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 45, Oh, the Horror. <laughs> today we have a special guest, an author, a publisher, a game writer, uh, I love him because he published one of my stories that nobody else wanted, John Baltisberger. Welcome, John. Hello, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's a delight. Like I said, Madness Heart Press was where I first got to know you because you were advertising, found you on Duotrope. How did you, I mean, everything I read of yours is touching on horror. What do you love about horror? We have never discussed horror on our show. Well, so, you're jumping to a conclusion. Maybe he doesn't love horror. Maybe he just writes it and hates it. How do you feel so, about horror? So funny story, actually. I never intended to be a horror writer. Uh, I was going to write fantasy and urban fantasy. And every single story I wrote and showed a beta reader, they're like, oh, man, that's creepy as hell. Oh, man, that's horrifying. Okay. Like, oh, well, I guess, uh, <laughs> hey, everyone, I guess I write horror. <laughs> everyone has a talent for something. Dave's is dying. Yours is killing. I, you know, it's beautiful. <laughs> I liked your tagline, where Southern hospitality meets mind-shredding insanity. It's very polite. So, did you first start writing, or how, you know, when, when did you decide? How old were you when you decided, I want to make a living at this? Oh, um, man, so I started writing my first really awful fantasy book in uh, college, and I wrote poetry all throughout uh, my life, much of it cringy, horrible uh, bullshit, as most poets do, right? But um, I got laid off in 2016 uh, from my sales job, and I, I looked for a new job during that time, and eventually I turned to my wife and I said, hey, what if, what if I try to make it as a writer? And my wife, who is as lovely as she is insane, said, yeah, I support you. Rockin'. <laughs> wow, just like that? Yeah, no, uh, I am very lucky to have a, a partner who is literally willing to support any harebrained idea I come up with so long as it doesn't bankrupt the family. And seeing as I was unemployed at the time, like – it wasn't going to hurt us. <laughs> <laughs> Anything's better than nothing. Huh? Yeah. Like, like there was literally, I couldn't get go down. <laughs> well, so you, so you started writing. How did you plot it out? What were your, we, we talk a little bit about like KPIs of like, how do you know when you're succeeding at this thing you've chosen to do? So uh, for poetry, cause I do write a lot of poetry. Um, a poetry book written in America is considered a wild success if it sells a hundred copies, uh, which if you know anything about royalties translates to about a coffee and a scone. It's true. Um, <laughs> yep. We have a friend, Amber Nelson up in Seattle that is a poet and yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it, it's something I want to change, but I don't, like, I'm not going to, but I'm going to struggle to do it as often as I can. Um, that said, I have I have a lot of friends who are 
known names in the horror industry, right? People that like you will see their names pop up in uh, awards or in book groups and they still have day jobs. Uh, and I have other friends who make their entire living from selling and writing books. And the, the goal at first is to break even uh, as a publisher. The, the secondary goal is to be able to make my entire income uh, just where I am now, able to pay my bills and support my family uh, off my writing and publishing. It's, it's oh, wait, you, you, did you start out then publishing or did you sit down and start writing or, or what did you do? So I, I started writing and I self-published a couple of books and then realized like, hey, this is, if you know what you're doing, if you have, you know, a strong sense of design and purpose and direction, like this is kind of a way to start a publishing company. Uh, and it's how a lot of independent publishers go is they start out self-publishing and realize, hey, I can do this. Uh, and it's spurred on by seeing really crappy anthologies and really shittily produced books and being like, oh, other people are doing just terrible. I can do better than this. And then you go and you do. That's, that's remarkably strikes a chord with me. That was when I finally decided that I could write was by watching a couple of the movies went by based on, they're like, based on the best-selling novel. I'm like, that story is best-selling? Really? Yeah. I could Jeff do Branchley that. Jeff tells the story of how he got into writing. He, he wrote a lot of crappy writing and said, I can do better than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Absolutely. The rest is history, as they say. It's true. Now, you actually published a book of poetry, horror poetry, which I, of course, bought. Thank you. Uh, because I like it. And... I think it's quite splendid. It's You write from many different perspectives, and if we didn't know that you have a happy wife and kid and she should sleep with a gun under her pillow because, <laughs> oh, my God, John. So, um, okay, a couple of things. I'm working on my next collection of poetry, which is actually a, a novella in verse, and it's much more graphic and upsetting than my first collection. Uh, so I'm warning you now, but the other thing is, uh, when I was writing that first collection, my father-in-law was living with us, uh, due to my aforementioned layoff and I would read the poems to her. And one day he came out of his room, looked at us and said, I want to lock on my door. (laughs) It's like, man, yeah, you should probably get that though. I yeah. will. I will eat you. That's fair. It's better than saying you can kill him with your brain, because you know that's just quoting somebody else. <laughs> I I prefer. I always. I almost always prefer the cannibalism angle for threats. Uh, I think it's because I respect the Maori uh, and the Hakka with like this tongue sticking out, and uh, but I'm I'm also very very white, so I can't actually pull off a Hakka. Um, and so instead, I just kind of go Dahmer with it. There's a whole lot of guys on the All Blacks team, and not all of them are Maori, and they can do a very credible. It's it got to come from the solar plexus somewhere in there. Mm. Uh, it's legs. Those guys are all leg. I, I won't lie. I have spent I have spent hours just YouTubing uh, people doing hakas in uh, oh, situations where you wouldn't expect. I'm like. 
I've seen them at funerals and weddings and all just sit on my couch crying like a baby eating a gallon of ice cream watching. Have you seen the Lawson's Scotch haka and then the gingerbread haka? If you haven't, I, I'll post the link so you and our readers can watch it too. But I haven't and I'm excited. The, the New Zealand baking competition has the gingerbread haka and that alone makes it all worthwhile. That sounds amazing. One of my favorite stories is when um, a, a team, a rugby team from Australia was playing the rugby team from uh, New Zealand. And the New Zealand's team always opens every game with a haka. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Australia's team answered with their own. <laughs> and I was like, man, that must have been like a breathtaking sight. Oh, now. If you really get into it, you got to watch the All Blacks versus Tonga because then you have Hakka versus Sippy Tau. Oh, so oh, that makes me excited. Uh, you know, we'll we'll talk more about this afterwards and page back and forth. But I was going to say we supposed to be talking about writing or something. We are. Well, this is all for me. It all becomes of what kind of a brain produces horror, which I find terribly interesting. There's there's two of us in in my writers group. Mark Pantoja and I are the ones that come up with stories of, you know, death, dismemberment, or as my husband likes to put it, I see you managed to kill another child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was late at night, and uh, Cliff Winnig in my writing group, we, I was, he was having a rough night. A friend of his died, and I was kind of sitting up shiva with him at 2 o'clock in the morning, and out of the blue, he's like, where does this horror come from? What are you rebelling against? Why do you? And for me, it was explaining that I write horror and horror stories and include so much death because I am deeply angry because I see how the world could be, how it ought to be, and people do terrible things to each other. And I don't like how people do terrible things to each other. So I'm just going to add tentacles and horror from the void and beyond, which at least you can hate with a clear conscience. Sure. Where does does horror come from for you? Is it joy, anger, sorrow, depression? Mm. Anxiety. Because it's funny. Sometimes it is funny. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Warhammer 40K books because they're so over the top, and the horror in them is ridiculous. It's stupid, and I love it. However, I don't write that way. Um, I've had a lot of people pick up my books. A lot of publishers who have been looking at my manuscripts say, like, when you describe this book to me, I was really expecting it to be super funny. No, sorry. Um, I I have a book coming out from uh, St. Rooster uh, in June called Blood and Mud in which Satan summons a golem to destroy Chicago. And when I pitched it, the guy's like, yeah, that sounds great. Send it to me. And then he he called me. He's like, hey, man, I, I thought you were pitching me a comedy. I was like, no, no, sir. Jewish horror. Sorry. Uh, well, I, I think Jewish horror is interesting. I mean, there, there are many weird creatures that fly through the Old Testament, that fly through the streets of Prague. I mean, I visited Prague and got the story of the golem and fell in love. So tell us more. You're writing a little bit about Jewish horror these days, right? I'm writing a shit ton about Jewish horror. Um, I have three books coming out this summer alone, all themed on that, uh, including one that is the uh, the start of a ongoing series. 
Um, now, do you go with more of the monsters, the creations, the constructs, or is it human beings? Everything. Um, there. So, uh, so first of all, in in the ongoing series, Trafe Magic, the first book, uh, I include footnotes for every Hebrew and Yiddish word, and and some of the religious words that people may not recognize. And in the novella, Blood and Mud, uh, I wrote a four thousand word essay on uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, just just because that's what I do. But part of um, what I, I mentioned, we could do a whole episode just on Kabbalah alone yeah. and the mysticism part. And you should totally come back and do that. But horror. <laughs> but what I mentioned is that Judaism has been around for you know. Six thousand years, and it's picked up elements of horror and monsters and weird mythology and folklore from all around the globe over all that time. So there's just this this amazing palette of things to choose from, uh, and some of it's super creepy, and some of it's surreal, um, and very little of it is black and white. Very little of it is good versus evil. Uh, and that's one thing I find so fascinating about it. And uh, one thing I really try to showcase is that there is no good versus evil in this horror. It's all shades of gray where you're not sure who the monster is, who's doing good, who's doing bad. Um, well, okay, the poetry book is not like that. It's, <laughs> it's pretty much bad all the way down. But <laughs> the story, I, I love your swirling whispers. You know, what is the cost of losing one's mind? So, you know, they're beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, horror poetry is a great thing, though. Um, I really enjoy writing flash fiction and microfiction. Uh, I think it leaves a taste on the tongue that keeps people thinking. It keeps people feeling that that uh that dread as they tried to fill in the blanks you left and poetry is nothing if not flash fiction so when you writing in verse is almost cheating you can kind of do these weird things and get away with manipulating language and turns of phrases and leaving blank spaces where in a short story people would be like hey man what the fuck are you doing <laughs> but in in poetry, it's fine. It's expected. It's, it kind of provides a certain structure in itself so you can fill in the blanks easier. I mean, not to, not to belittle the writing of poetry for anyone in the world, but as Sorry. I think Dave said, if you're using like iambic pentameter, it's your form. It's going to go a certain way so you can rely upon that and it helps you find the right word quicker because... You have to figure I had out a how conversation. Gonna... Yeah, conversation last week with uh, uh, Jeff Berry, um, and we concluded that well, a lot of people have said that um, having a form of some sort. He was talking about iamb iambic pentameter. He writes in iambic pentameter, and having that structure um, actually helps him be more creative. I had a conversation. Sorry, I, I had a conversation with another writer, and I told them I get up every morning uh, at 6, and I try to write from 6 to 8 a.m. Um, and he looked at me and said, well, how, but you write poetry. How do you force yourself to write poetry? 
uh, doesn't it just have to come to you? And I think there's, there's something to what your friend was saying is like, uh, especially for that first collection, which is very rigid and following very specific rules where um, you have the rules and you have the concept. Everything else is just putting the, uh, the pieces of the middle part of the puzzle in, you know, cause you already have all the edge pieces in place. Yeah. I find that when I have it, and it doesn't have to be a form, it can be, uh, just an idea, something, some kind of kernel to start with. Um, uh, I, then, then the work is kind of cut out and then I can kind of start. Um, I mean, that's where the real work begins, but, but you know what the work is, right? So, yeah. So we've talked about this in other episodes and I'm going to ask you some of the similar questions like how do you stay focused and stay organized? Do you use, um, are you a Scrivener person? Do you use notepads? Do you have carry around a constant notepad with you? What do you use to capture all your ideas and how do you keep it down? You know that meme of Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with him in front of the uh, the whiteboard with all the red string and the, the notes and the arrows and all that? Yeah. That's essentially me. I do write in Scrivener, uh, but I don't use it to organize my thoughts more than a number of chapters and like basic idea of what's going to happen per chapter. Uh, I have a... I'm turning to look at it and my audio probably sucks as I do. I have a whiteboard uh, calendar next to my desk here. And I have on the top, I have sticky notes with uh, chapters for the book I'm writing. Uh, And then I have legal pad paper that I've torn out and uh, push pinned into it four pages at the moment. Uh, with uh, more in-depth synopsises of the the book, then on the bottom I have our the Madness Art Press publishing calendar, and on my desk I have one, two, I have four legal pads with various notes on different things and two study guides on ones for Kabbalah, ones on biblical Hebrew, and that's before you get to the the all the rum on my desk at the moment, which is not loose rum. It's, it's contained rum and will soon be contained within me. I, I think that rum is kind of like the lifeblood. I, I don't remember which poet said, you know, I bleed and it's my blood you're reading on the pages. But I think if you mix the blood liberally with wine or rum, it's, it's closer approximation for many. I agree. I once had a friend come over and use the shower at my house and then remarked to me that they were surprised that it had water instead of rum i was like well the city refused but Mm. i tried i did try plus it helps if you get a friend that runs a distillery and i don't know if you've noticed this but sometimes really great distilleries they arise and you worship them and you can't convince enough people and they don't stay open and then you have to mourn them and it's it's a process back 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 to horror writing. <laughs> this this can go on our companion website, Writers Bleeding Liquor. <laughs> That's fair. So, you're a scrivener. Pieces. Uh, do you? Uh, sounds like you're a plotter rather than a pantser. Then would you say? Uh, I'm so. I sit somewhere comfortably in the middle. Uh, I don't. I don't make the in-depth plans. And sometimes I worry that my subplot game is weaker than it should be because of that. 
Um, my, what I, what I do and what I tell other people is that I try to create realistic characters. Um, I give them personalities, I give them real motivation, and then I put them in a situation and if I write them well, they're going to react a certain way. I don't have to plan how they're going to react. They'll react according to their characteristics and their personality. Um, and that will often lead me to the next scene. So I know what is going, I, ha, I know the overarching action. I know what's going to happen for the most part, but the minutia, how it gets from point A to point B, I don't always have a clear idea of. That seems to be a, a fairly common, uh, uh, well, to the extent that anything's common uh, among writers, but um, I've heard a lot of writers say that, you know, the character kind of writes itself or at least, you know, kind of tells you what it's going to do once you develop it enough. Yeah, and often and often kind of wrecks your novel in the process, right? <laughs> and into something else. But if if you write a good character, I, look, characters don't have a mind of their own. You control them as the writer. But if you if you do a good job creating them and they're a realistic character, they're going to behave in a certain way. And writing them in a way that isn't natural or doesn't feel uh, uh, realistic is jarring and painful. That is probably as good a way of putting that as I've ever heard. Yeah. And if you make them two-dimensional, like, this is a horror. He just loves clutter. It's boring. Yeah. I mean, complicated is interesting, which kind of leads me to another area that uh, I'm going to use you to springboard off a question that somebody asked us on our page. Like, have you ever had a story and then a publisher came back and said, well, I kind of like it, but can you change this thing? And they were sort of, I think, trying to lead asking about, is it artistic integrity versus do you say, yep, I'm on it? <laughs> you know, there's a, I've talked a lot about this on, on, on my show, but there's, there's a point in your career where you, uh, you'll jump on whatever a publisher says just to get published. And slowly you can, uh, as you, eke out your own name and you, and you strengthen your own game as a writer, you can stop taking as much advice. Uh, but one of the first books I worked with a writer on, um, they had, they had arbitrary Nazis in it. And wait, wait are, what is an arbitrary Nazi or is it just random? I'm using them because people think they're bad or how? Do yes. You know? Yeah. That second one. And here's the thing. Uh, I am, and this, this arbitrary Nazi got their teeth kicked in and I am all for that every, any day, every day, I will always consume media in which, uh, Hallelujah, brother. Nazis get beat down to the dirt every single day. Um, uh, I'm not with you, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it, there was no reason for it. It was, it was simply, to make this character more evil and it felt cartoonish. It didn't add anything to, to the story. And so I told him like, Hey man, and I, you know, I explained it to him and, and he ended up agreeing with me. Uh, but there's a difference between a, a publisher saying, I think this will make a story stronger uh, and playing kind of writing coach, which even the best writer can take advice. And, and a publisher trying to play backseat writer. And you have to, yeah. have to know the difference and be aware of it. 
do you use reader groups? Do you have friends that read over your stories and say, I, I don't understand, how did this, you know, give you feedback before you go to the final thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think every writer needs a beta reader or five. Uh, it can be very difficult to get because uh, I once made a joke that writers never read because they're too busy or writers can't read because they're too busy writing. Um, but I get a lot of feedback from uh, my fans uh, that I'm personal friends with. Cause I'll give them a manuscript and say, here's my next book. And they'll say, okay, I like this. I didn't like this, or I didn't understand this. And it, uh, oftentimes the suggestions you get are terrible and not going to be as good as your writing. However, the issue that they're pointing to is a real one that needs to be addressed. A true story. I mean, it's like, clearly you did not get what was in my head. Therefore, how much of it is you and how much of it do I need to go back and look at my communication? Exactly. Yeah. So we're, we're running towards the end here. I want to say, who are your favorite horror writers? All the way around. So uh, I am a massive Clive Barker fan. Um, I love his his work as a playwright, and I love his novels, and uh, I like his movies. There's not a lot about Mr. Barker that I'm not just a giant nerd fanboy for. Awesome. Dave, how about you? Um, I don't read or consume a lot of horror, uh, for that matter. Um, but I do have uh, a preference for um, psychological horror. I don't care. Don't care much for um, you know kind of splattery shock horror. Um, so if I'm going to do horror, it's going to be you know it's got to be kind of uh, uh, I don't know. I would say intellectual or or at least um, psychological. I always like to call it suspense rather than horror sometimes too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a. And you? I love Poe. You know, you gotta love the classics. But at the same time, I love how, I love how Steve Moffat wrote Hannibal Lecter. You know, in the TV series, that was beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I like the way he just reimagined Dracula because I love the original Dracula, and then the new way is, ha! Huh, how did he think of that? You clever, clever bastard. And I think as a kid, I grew a lot of, I read a lot of John Saul, and it was a little sad that it was always, you know, some demon or devil spirit. And so I went through a John Saul phase, and I say it was influential, but he didn't stick as well as some of the others. And uh, Mark Pentoha, I'll pimp him out for my writer's group. I, I love his horror. I love his short stories. He had a funny thing, though, of a horrible creature once that was abused by his family and you had us all sympathetic and then he was rude to a bartender and I'm like, no, you stiffed your bartender, man. He is no longer a sympathetic character. <laughs> and it's weird how you love... You Tough can, crowd. You can love an evil guy. Like I read the book Tarkin. I love Tarkin. I love Vader. But the minute you create them being mean and rude to somebody beneath them for no reason, it's... Eh. Yeah. Well, that's... that's yeah, but that's your value set kind of ring. It's, it's, it's not universal necessarily. Well, that's the whole point of me saying what I like. <laughs> uh, point taken. All right. 
Uh, well, John, I want to really thank you for visiting us today. And John has a whole bunch of stuff that's available out there and for sale. And you will find all of the links of it on our website. So we'll have links to the stories and all the interesting things and authors we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we answer email. If you have a question for uh, John or any one of our guests, we will let them know and they will answer it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, which is a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider and host is Dave Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag, including the new red coffee is the best coffee. And all you need is a plan quote shirts. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.